Chapter 18 of An Eye for an Eye by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter 18. You Will Never Know. Never. Dick returned about eleven, and shortly afterwards Boyd swallowed another whiskey and soda and left. I thought my friend started slightly at finding the detective with me, but he betrayed not the slightest annoyance. Indeed, he himself started the discussion regarding the mystery, appearing in no way loath to discuss it in all its phases. The detective's suspicion was certainly a startling one, and of course accounted for his anxiety that Dick should in the future remain in utter ignorance of our actions. When Boyd had gone he at once commenced to question me upon what theories he had expressed and in what direction he was prosecuting inquiries. Although I would not allow myself to suspect my best friend, I nevertheless preserved the silence which Boyd had imposed upon me, evading giving him direct answers, preserving the secret of the identity of the man seen in St. James's Park, and managing to put aside his questions by a declaration that personally I was sick of the whole matter, for I felt that it would now ever remain a mystery. That night, however, I remained awake many hours thinking fondly of Eva, and calmly revolving in my mind all that had fallen from the lips of Boyd. He, one of the most skillful officers in London, had formed no theory. He only entertained suspicions, vague perhaps, yet by no means groundless. I had not seen Eva since that day when the strange, incomprehensible attempt had been made to take my life, and a strong desire again possessed me to stroll at her side, to hear her voice, to hold her hand. Was it, I wondered time after time, that hand, so soft, slim, and delicate, that had actually attempted to secretly take my life? The detective had calmly reviewed all the facts I had explained, and, as a professional investigator of crime, had openly expressed a suspicion in the affirmative. Often had I wondered what kind of woman was Eva's mother, whom I had never met. That she was somewhat eccentric was evident from her daughter's words on the last occasion, I had visited Riverdene. I lay there thinking of Eva, scouting every suspicion which the detective's words had aroused within me, until, with the first streak of dawn, I fell asleep and dreamed of her. Next afternoon, without mentioning anything to Dick, save the sending of a telegram to say that I should not dine at home, I left my office half an hour earlier, and, full of conflicting thoughts, traveled down to Riverdene. Having been informed by the servant that Mrs. Blaine and Miss Mary were absent in London shopping, but that Miss Glaslyn was at home, I was shown into the long, pleasant drawing-room which opened upon the wide lawn sloping to the river's bank. The great bowls of cut flowers diffused a pleasant odor, and the books and papers lying in the cozy corner with its soft cushions of pale blue silk betrayed signs of recent occupation. It was a low-ceilinged, comfortable apartment cool and restful after the dust and glare of the white road outside. In a few moments the door opened, and Eva entered, fresh and charming in a cool dress of clean flannel, her sweet face illumined by a sweet smile of glad welcome. "'This is quite an unexpected pleasure, Mr. Irwin,' she exclaimed, rushing towards me gladly with outstretched hand. "'I had no idea that you'd come down today. The Blains are up in town, you know. I should have gone, only I had a rather bad headache. We went up to Windsor yesterday with the Thurleys on their lunch, and I suppose the sun upset me. It was unbearably hot. 
"'Why do you persist in calling me Mr. Irwin?' I asked in a rather reproachful tone, still retaining possession of her hand. "'Cannot you call me Frank?' She blushed slightly and drew her hand forcibly away. Then, motioning me to a seat, she cast herself into a low armchair near me, stretching forth her tiny foot, neat in its silk stocking and patent leather shoe. She made no response to my suggestion, so I repeated it. "'Why should I call you by your Christian name?' she asked. "'Because I call you by yours, Eva,' I answered earnestly. "'I really can't bear this persistent formality.' She smiled, a rather curious smile it was, I thought. "'So you're staying as guest here,' I went on, after a moment's pause. "'Yes,' she explained. "'My Uncle Henry in Inverness is very ill and not expected to live. Therefore they summon Mother by telegraph with other members of the family. As the servants have had no holiday this year, she sent them away for a fortnight and closed the house, Mrs. Blaine having invited me here. Have you heard from your mother?' "'Yes, I had a wire to say that she had arrived, safely,' she answered, not, however, without a second's hesitation, as though she were debating whether or not to tell me the truth. "'And Mr. Blaine has not returned from Paris yet?' I asked. "'No,' she responded. "'The Blaines are talking of joining him next week, or perhaps the week after, and have invited me to accompany them. I should be delighted, for I love Paris.' "'You find the shops interesting?' I laughed. "'Yes,' she answered. All women do, I suppose. At least I've met very few who, having been in Paris, haven't hunted for bargains at the Louvre, the Contempt, or the Bar Marche. Paris is worth visiting if only for one's hats, for you can often buy a hat for twenty francs exactly the same style, and a better material than that for which you would pay three or four guineas in Regent Street. I'm not much of an expert in such things, I laughed, nevertheless reflecting how curious it was that Blaine remained still in London. Might not his wife and daughter have gone up that day to visit him in his hiding-place? "'But you've been awfully queer, I hear,' she said concernedly. "'You really don't look quite yourself, even now. What has been the matter? We were all so concerned when we heard about it.' Our eyes met. In hers there was a deep, earnest look, as though she were really solicitous of my welfare. Yet I fancied somehow that those clear blue eyes wavered beneath my steady, searching gaze. She watched me, reading me as easily as she would have read black letters on a white page. "'I was taken suddenly ill. The heat, perhaps,' I answered with affected carelessness. "'I had run down,' the doctor said. It was nothing very serious. She gave vent to a perceptible sigh of relief, then, smiling sweetly as she ever did, said, "'Well, it is indeed a pleasure to welcome you here again to-day.' She still wore that brooch the quaint little playing-card which had betrayed her visit to Morris Lowry. Its sight sent a strange thrill through me, for I remembered the object of her visit to that dark, dirty, obscure herbalist. "'The pleasure is mutual, believe me, Eva,' I answered, putting away from me instantly the gruesome thought oppressing me. "'Through this whole month I have thought only of you.' She sighed, in an instant serious. Then, glancing back to assure herself that there were no eavesdroppers, she said, "'It would be far better, Mr. Irwin, Frank, if you could leave me and forget.' "'But I can't,' I said, rising quickly, and again taking her soft white hand. "'You know, Eva, how deeply, how sincerely, how devotedly I love you, how I am entirely yours forever.' I spoke simply and directly what I felt. 
I was calmer than I had been when I rode her beneath the willow shade. "'Ah, no!' she cried in a pained voice, rising to her feet with sudden resolution. "'You really must not say this. I will not let you sacrifice yourself. I will not allow you to thus—' "'It is no sacrifice,' I protested, interrupting quickly. "'I love you, Eva, with all my soul. One woman alone in all the world holds me beneath the spell of her grace, her charm, and her sweetness. It is yourself. Every hour I think only of you. Ever before me your face rises in my daydreams, and in those moments when I see your sweet smiles I tell myself that no other woman can ever have a place in my heart. Ah, you cannot know how fondly I love you, I said, raising the hand tenderly to my lips and imprinting a kiss upon it. If you could only know you would never treat me with this cold, calm indifference. Her bosom rose and fell slowly, and she was silent. I fancied that she shuddered slightly. At that moment my position struck me as an extremely strange one, declaring love to one whom an expert detective suspected of having made a cowardly attempt upon my life. Was it just? I asked myself. Yes, in this I was justified, for I loved her even though I had more than once been inclined to agree with Boyd in his misgivings. "'I was not aware of any indifference,' she faltered at last, raising her great eyes so clear and earnest for an instant to mine. "'I have merely urged you to reflect.' "'Reflection is unnecessary,' I answered quickly. "'I know that I love you truly. That surely is sufficient.' "'It might be if I were free,' she responded in a low, hoarse voice. "'But I tell you today, Frank, as I told you before, this love-dream of ours is impossible of realization. Then you do reciprocate my love, I cried, in joyous eagerness. Come, tell me, do not keep me longer in suspense. I have already told you, she answered in a low, intense voice, of what use is it to continue this painful discussion? Of every use, I cried in desperation. Give me one word of hope, Ava. Tell me that some day you will try and love me better than you do now that some day in the future you will become my wife. Tell me. No, no, she cried, snatching her hand away and receding from me. No, Frank, I cannot. I will not lie to you. Then can you never love me? Never? I cried despairingly. Never, she answered hoarsely, and her answer struck deep into my heart. I have sinned, sinned before God and before man, and love no longer knows a place in my heart. And her fine head was bowed before me. "'Sinned?' I gasped. "'What do you mean?' "'I am a social leper,' she panted, raising her head and looking at me with wild, unnatural gaze. "'If you knew the dark and awful truth, you would shun me rather than kiss my hand. Yet you say you love me, you who would have so great a cause to hate me, if you knew the ghastly truth.' "'But,' I cried, wondering at these strange words, and with my suspicions again aroused, "'I do love you, nevertheless, Ava. I shall always love you. I swear it, for my very life is yours. Your life, she echoed in a weird, harsh voice, as she stood pale-faced, swaying before me, her hands clasped to her breast, her lips cold and white. Yes, she said in a strange, half-hysterical tone. Yes, it is true, too true, alas, that your future is in my hands. Only by a miracle have you come back to life, a grim shadow of a crime to taunt, to defy, to denounce. Ah, oh, Frank, you do not know the terrible truth. You will never know, never. I was bewildered. Horror possessed me. The darkness of an irreversible fact spread over her and made her terrible to me. 
all must be given up. Conscience pronounced this dread decree and multiplied the pain a thousand times. Destiny had once more taken me by the elbow. End of chapter 18. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.